Listen to what Paul wrote to the Philippians from a, a Roman jail. He wrote these words, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I'll have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul wrote those words. He's sitting in a Roman prison, and he has no idea what the empty pages in the spiral, how those are going to be filled in. He doesn't know if they're going to set him free, and he's soon going to be off on another missionary journey. He doesn't know if he's going to wind up in the Roman Colosseum facing off with the lions. But what he's praying is that no matter what happens, that he's going to have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted by his, by his actions. What would it take for you to renounce your faith? How much press, pressure do you suppose you could withstand before your faith cracks? How much heat before your faith begins to wilt? Those are difficult questions that I don't think we should probably dare to answer, lest God test us. But I ask those difficult questions because over the course of the next two Sundays, we are going to visit the Israelites, the faith-fickle Israelites, in their sojourn between Egypt and the Promised Land. And we're going to stand with them at the base of Mount Sinai as their faith begins to crack, as their faith begins to, to wilt. Moses and Joshua go up the mountain, and they're a long time in returning, and the Israelites quickly renounce their faith. They do the exact opposite thing that Paul was praying for. Instead of having sufficient courage their faith craters. Instead of exalting God by their actions, they bring shame and dishonor to God. Instead of leaning into their identity as children of God, this new identity that God has given them, they return to that which is familiar. And so we're going to visit them, and it's awfully easy for us in this place of security to judge them, to mock them, to ridicule them, those faithless Israelites. But the danger in taking that posture is that we fail to learn from them. God calls us to learn from them. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Father God, we join Paul in praying that we too might have sufficient courage so that now, as always, you will be exalted by our lives, even when things get hard. But Lord, we also must confess that our, our faith wavers all too quickly. So we ask that you would strengthen us by the power of your spirit, form us by the power of your word, so that we might bring you glory in all things and at all times. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. We are going to pick up the story, actually, before the the golden calf incident. We're going to wind back to Exodus chapter 19, and this chronicles the Israelites' arrival uh, to Mount Sinai. So we're going to start with just the first verse, Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. So it has been three months since God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. Three months since they left in haste, since they, they plundered Egypt, took, taking gold and silver with them. Three months. That is the span of time that we've had this summer, since school ended to, to school now beginning. So think about this summer. Think about how fast this summer has gone. Think about the things you've done this summer That is the amount of time that they have been on the run and what a a three months it had been for them. They're dramatically rescued from captivity, miraculously rescued from captivity. They plunder the Egyptians as they leave. Immediately, they're confronted by a sea. No problem. God parts the sea. They walk through. They've got an aquarium on either side. As soon as the last Israelite steps out of the sea, the sea crashes down on the Egyptians who are pursuing them. They're hungry. No problem. God feeds them every single morning by showering this miraculous bread from heaven. And they're so confident in it that they don't have to take more than what is needed for the day because the next day, as sure as the sun rises, God's going to provide another supply of of heavenly bread they're thirsty they're in the desert no problem god turns a rock into a water fountain and gives them water to drink they're confronted with the amalekites this fierce amalekites who who go to war with them again god intervenes moses lifts his hands in prayer and as long as moses hands are, are lifted in prayer god gives them victory in battle So now they've arrived three months later. Imagine the first day of homeschool. All the little boys and all the little girls write a brief paragraph about what you did this summer. Well, we were rescued from Egypt and we took all this gold with us and I walked across the sea and I ate bread from heaven and drank water from a rock and saw my my parents defeat the Amalekites in war, what'd you do? Played Mario Kart. (laughs) It was an action-packed three months. And God knows that his people need respite. You can't live at that pace all the time. And so he draws them to the base of Mount Sinai, calls them to camp out there, and they're going to be there for almost a year. For the next 11 months, they're going to be camped out at the base of this mountain. It's a time to pause. It's a time to regroup. God is going to use this time to give his people a new identity. And so we can continue reading. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. 
and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to Israel. So we need to remember who it is that is hearing these words. These are the same people who have been enslaved for hundreds of years. They have been trapped in generational slavery for hundreds of years. Their children would one day be slaves. Their slaves, their parents' slaves, their grandparents' slaves, great-grandparents' slaves. Their identity is thoroughly, completely that of an Egyptian slave. Nobody's. They have no value beyond the, the number of bricks that they can produce in a single day. Beaten down day after day, every shred of dignity taken from them, every flicker of hope extinguished until now. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Treasured possession. I mean, they're used to being a possession, but not a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a holy nation. A holy nation, us? Now, it's not going to be long before we're all asking, how could you turn on God so quickly? How could the Israelites possibly be so rebellious that they go and make a golden calf to worship, that they turn away from the one true God after all of those miracles that they've experienced? How could they renounce their faith so easily, so quickly? I think the answer to that question is found here in Exodus 19. You see, Satan, the adversary, is not about to let them live into this new identity without a fight. Satan wants to drag them back into the Egyptian mud pits, back to where they belong. Worthless slaves who exist simply to make bricks. That's all you are, that's all you should ever aspire to be. Identity. It is impossible for us to overstate the importance, the power of identity. Every single one of us has a, 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 an identity that we, we live with, that we operate out of. Our identity is that running script that is always playing in the back of our mind. Our identity is shaped throughout our entire life, especially in the, the formative years. For better or for worse, it's shaped by, by what is said to us and what is withheld from us, what is not said. It's shaped by our experiences. It's shaped by what is believed about us. A child who is told that, that you're never going to amount to anything versus a child who is told that, that they have dignity and, and that they have purpose and that they matter, that really has a profound impact. And so our identity 
is how we see ourselves. It's how we see the group to which we belong. Our identity influences our self-talk. Are you aware that you're always talking to yourself? You've got this internal dialogue all the time, and that self-talk is formed out of your identity. Our identity influences the things that we truly believe in our heart of hearts about ourselves, who we are, what we're capable of, what we're incapable of, where we fit in, where we don't fit in. Our identity is connected to our actions. We act out of who we believe ourselves to be. Now, fortunately for us, none of us have been trapped in 430 years of generational slavery, and so we don't have that hanging over us. But unfortunately for us, because we all live in a fallen world, we've taken a few hits. Our identity has some dents in it. We've had experiences where we've been made to feel that we weren't enough, weren't good enough, not strong enough, not pretty enough, not athletic enough, not accomplished enough. We've experienced rejections which have only reinforced those feelings that were less than. We've experienced shame. We've experienced the voice of condemnation. And then, for many of us, we've had an encounter with God. With the same God who swooped down and carried the Israelites on wings like an eagle. God entered into our lives, graciously entered into our lives with the offer of a new identity. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, the scripture says. The old is gone, the new has come. And so what does God say to you? He says, you are my treasured possession. You may not have always heard that, you may not believe that, but but I tell you, you are my treasured possession. And I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you. He says to you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are chosen before the creation of the world. You are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king. God assures us that he has plans for us, plans to prosper us, not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future. In Christ, that's who you are. That is your identity. And there is power in that. As we claim that identity, there is power. That means nothing, as we sang, as we prayed, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not a single thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Boy, that'll preach. You can live into that. There is no condemnation, no matter what the accuser wants you to believe. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. You are a beloved child of God, his treasured possession, and nothing can change that. And so God says to Moses, tell him. Tell him that, Moses. And so Moses did. And at least for a little while, they believed it. 
Continuing reading, Moses went back and he summoned the elders of the people and he set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything that the Lord has said. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. That is beautiful. This is a a rags to riches story of salvation. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And it was such an easy profession of faith for the Israelites to make. I mean, they had been forced into submission under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, and now they're being invited to submit to one who says, you are my treasured possession, and I love you. They're invited to submit to the one who's been carrying them on eagle's wings. And so they say, yes. The answer is yes. We will trust you. We will obey. You will be our God and we will be your people. So again, I ask the question, what do you think it would take for them to renounce their faith? How much pressure before they crack? How much heat before they wilt? And the answer, sadly, is not much. A little pressure, a little heat, and they quickly return to their former identity. So Moses and Joshua are beckoned back up the mountain where they are going to be talking with God, where God is going to be giving them instructions about how to form the tabernacle where God is going to engrave by his own finger the Ten Commandments and and give that to Moses in tablets of stone and they're gone for 40 days and during that time the Israelites begin to get anxious wondering what has happened to Moses and so we're we're skipping forward now to Exodus chapter 32 when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain They gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. They're returning to that which is familiar. This was the custom in Egypt, to fashion gods out of gold and to worship them. It's what they knew, it's it's where they had been living, and so they returned to what they know. And notice it's not a matter of, like, there's no God. This is not atheism we're talking about. Atheism is actually a fairly modern construct. It's not a matter of if there is a God. It's just which God or which gods. And so they they fashion this gold and they say, this is who rescued us from Egypt. So they come to Aaron. Moses has put his brother Aaron in charge. And naturally, we expect Aaron to say, whoa, We're not going there. Be patient. Wait a little bit longer. God has proved himself to us. We are going to trust God. Wait. But Moses is, or Aaron is not Moses. And so continuing reading, Aaron answered them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. This is gold, no doubt, that they've plundered from Egypt. Take off your gold and bring it to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. That's something when you can make a god with your own tools. Then they said, 
These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. So I imagine sitting from where we're sitting today, it is so easy to dismiss this whole incident under the banner of, of ignorance. I mean, these primitive Israelites, they're, they're so uneducated. They're so naive in their thinking that they actually think that through their own tools, they can fashion a God, a God who they say has saved them from Egypt. How ridiculous. How absurd. We would never do that. When the screws get tightened, when the temperature rises, when their faith is tested, the Israelites turn away from the one true God. And so we've got to ask ourselves, when the, the screws get tightened in our life, when the temperature goes up, when we are tested, how do you respond? Because I believe there's plenty of golden calves today that compete for our, our worship and our allegiance. So the question that we really need to ask today is, what is my golden calf? What's my golden calf? What's that thing that I turn to in times of testing for comfort? What's that thing that I turn to that I, I place my trust in that? Here's just a few golden calves that I, I thought are at war for our, our heart. For some of us, it's work. And this is a tricky one because work is from God. Work is good. Work harder and you are applauded. We see that as a good thing. But this idea of working harder can easily become a golden calf. It can be a, an attempt to be my own savior. I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to work harder and harder. This is the thing that's going to save me, the work of my hands, the sweat of my own brow. I can't rely on God, and so I've got to do it myself. That's a golden calf. For some of us, it's simply three bottles at the end of the night, three cans that we can't wait to open to just kind of numb the pain to numb the, the stress. The golden calf for you might be a person. Notice the Israelites, they had come to depend on, on Moses, and, and as we read that, what I noticed is that they're not asking, where is God? They're asking, where's Moses? Like, we, we need Moses. And, and God would later confront his people and say this, stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils, of what account is he? And so we need people in our life, we need mentors, we need people that we look up to, that we trust, even depend on, but it's also important that we keep a proper perspective. Nobody is God. Nobody, no matter how great a leader they are, can replace God. The golden calf for a lot of us might just be consumption, just like Alcohol consumption can fill that, that empty spot in your soul until it doesn't. Clicking the, the checkout thing on the computer gives that little shot of dopamine. And seeing the package on your doorstep 
feels good, fills that empty space in your soul until it doesn't. The golden calf might be for you a, a certain accomplishment where you've convinced yourself, if I can obtain this, if I can land this job, if I can get this house that I so desperately want, if I can reach this certain level of income, if I can get this amount of money in my 401k, if I can get a little more recognition in my job, if I can just catch the elusive five-pound bass, then I'll be able to breathe easier. The golden calf might be related to uh, just another sexual thrill, a relationship conquest, the never-ending pursuit of perpetual youth. Talk about a golden calf that is at war for our soul. Scripture says God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. He is the God who carries us on eagles' wings. He is the God who has paid the greatest price that we might be his treasured possession. And listen to what he says. This comes from Isaiah. He says, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. I will not. So no matter what it is, God is not willing to share that which only belongs to him. So next week we're going to continue this story, and what we're going to see is that Moses intervenes on behalf of the Israelites, and we see a little picture of what Jesus has done for us. Moses is good, but Jesus is